0: Thank you all very much. It's great to join you for this LGBT History Month event at Cardiff University. The theme of tonight's talk is equality is not enough. Why equal rights is desirable, but not sufficient. So at first point, I guess you'd ask, how could anyone apart from hardcore right-wingers disagree with equality? Well, I can. It's not that I'm against equality, it's just that I don't think it goes far enough. Equality within the status quo may mean reinforcing an unjust status quo. So I'm interested in challenging what is rather than conforming to what is. Um, I think it's somewhat dispiriting compared to the 1970s, the way in which the women's black and LGBT plus movements have reduced their aspirations to the limited goal of equal rights. Whatever happened to the lofty goals of liberation? Instead of talking about transforming society, it's now about getting equality within what is. So as far as the LGBT plus community is concerned, I would calculate that this sort of shift in the homosexual zeitgeist started around the 1990s and coincided with a move into the political mainstream. Uh, the greater acceptance by the quote straight establishment precipitated greater compromise by the LGBT community. In particular by those organizations that were spearheading the fight on our behalf. There was a move away from defining our needs on our terms to a way of instead falling meekly in line with the prevailing heterosexual consensus. The questioning critique of mainstream society, of the early LGBT plus pioneers in the late 1960s and early 1970s, was supplanted by a simple quest for equality within society as it was. So transforming society really fell off the agenda. And so we now have a situation where the dominant LGBT plus agenda is very much about equal rights and law reform and has been for the last two decades, as distinct from queer emancipation and the transformation of society. And I would say that this political retreat, and I think that's what it is, represents a massive loss of imagination, confidence, and vision. And I think there's a similar retrenchment in the vision and agenda of the women's and black movements as well. They've moved away from critically analyzing and skeptically discerning the mainstream culture and instead sought an accommodation with it. An accommodation based on equality, for sure, but an accommodation rather than a transformation. So my view is, as I mentioned, equality is important, but it has its limitations. It isn't the panacea that many people claim. So to take LGBT plus people, equal rights for LGBT plus people inevitably means parity on straight terms within a pre existing framework of values, laws, and institutions. If we look at our society today, the structures of those society, of that society, were not devised by LGBT plus people they were devised by the quote straight majority so every institution from marriage the police the judiciary the criminal law it was all devised by the straight majority it was devised by the straight majority for the straight majority we were excluded so in that sense Equality within their system, the preordained, pre system that we've inherited from the straight majority, that inevitably means conformity according to their rules. And that, I think, is a formula for submission and incorporation, not liberation. Now, I want to emphasize that getting rid of homophobic, biphobic, and transphobic laws and discrimination is a very laudable aim. I've been part of that process myself. <clears throat> but it doesn't go far enough. Ending anti-LGBT bias will not resolve all of the problems faced by our community. Some of our difficulties arise not from anti-LGBT prejudice alone, but also from the more general erotophobic and sex-negative nature of much contemporary culture, which also harms heterosexual people. So if you have a a narrow LGBT plus agenda based on equal rights, that may resolve some problems, granted, but it won't give anything to straight people. It's about us. Whereas if you want to transform society, if you have a critical skeptical attitude towards social values, laws, and institutions, there is the hope that you can build an alliance between LGBT plus and straight people for our common liberation. We see the negative nature of puritanical attitudes which go beyond homophobia, biophobia, and transphobia, when it comes to the issue of consensual underage sex. Now, I'm not endorsing any young person who has sex before the age of 16, which is the legal limit, but I'm also disturbed by the moral panic that it often excites. So, if two knowing, consenting 15-year-olds, whether it be a boy and a girl, a boy and a boy, or a girl and a girl. If they have sex, with consent, with informed consent, I can't understand why we have this incredible moral panic about it. It may be best if they wait, but if they do and no one's one's complaining and no one's harmed, why are we so distressed by it? Sex is a natural part of being human. When puberty kicks in, young people have sexual feelings and desires. Now, obviously, any exploitative, manipulative, abusive relationship is wrong. But we all know that most young people today have consenting sex well before the lawful age of consent of 16. And it's fine. We know some people have sex before their age, and it's not fine. And we need to address that and deal with that and support those young people. And if there's an abusive relationship, then, of course, prosecute those involved. What I'm trying to get at is that sex negativity or puritanism or erotophobia is damaging to everyone, whatever our sexuality or gender identity. And therefore, we have a common interest in questioning whether 16 is the right age and how we should deal with young people who have sex below that age. We have the same kind of dilemma and problems over the um, censorship of sexual imagery. It's got much better in recent years. But for many, many, many decades, the exhibition of sexual explicit imagery was a serious criminal offence. Now, if you, like me, believe that there's nothing wrong with sex, there's nothing wrong with the human body or nakedness, why should visual representations of those be a crime? Of course, if people have been trafficked or coerced or manipulated, that's totally unacceptable. But if it's with consent, why should it be a crime? Now, for many years, the LGBT plus community argued they wanted the same laws affecting sexual explicit imagery as applied to heterosexual images, because it's true that same-sex images were much more heavily and fiercely and draconianly policed. But given the fact that even heterosexual images were criminal, Merely asking for equality, in my opinion, was not good enough. Look at sex education in schools. Of course, the LGBT community said, we want equal sex education. And a very fine thing that would have been, given the way in which LGBT plus education was excluded from most schools' sex and relationship education programs. But then think about it even young straight kids had very poor sex and relationship education. So equality would not have been a great be-all and end-all if we'd got that for LGBT plus kids as well. Or take the criminalization of sex workers or criminalization of consensual sadomasochistic relationships. Again, equality alone is, in my view, inadequate. It doesn't go far enough. It doesn't deal with the sex panic mentality that underlines much of our social attitudes and values and laws on these issues. Having said all this, I'd like to emphasise that the drawbacks associated with seeking mere equality are not of course limited to LGBT people. They also apply to women who are often forced to compete on male terms to get ahead in the workplace, and to black people, who will often only succeed if they adopt a white middle-class lifestyle and assimilate into the dominant Anglo-Saxon culture. Moreover, as women and ethnic minorities have discovered to their cost, the equal rights agenda is often not about respecting and embracing difference but seeking to obliterate it where's the dignity in that how can we have any self-respect if we sacrifice our own unique identity whether that be based on gender race or sexuality If we sacrifice that unique identity and culture for the sake of parity i think there are fundamentally intrinsic valuable things about black culture, about LGBT culture, which we need to treasure and preserve, not obliterate or erase or deny or put on the back foot in the name of equality. Yes, through the strategy of assimilation and accommodation, there have been many improvements but I wonder whether it might have been better to hold out or at least continue to pursue a new and further agenda beyond mere equal rights. I think if you look at it, equal rights do not equate automatically with genuine equality. We have had formal legal equality between the sexes For decades, yet even today, women's average earnings are still only just a little bit more than four-fifths of men's. We have seen in recent months the rightful explosion of anger about the mass sexual harassment and abuse of women in our society. That wasn't stopped or solved by the equality laws of the 70s, 80s or 90s. My point is, law is not sufficient. Law is a benchmark, an important advance, but it doesn't automatically equate with liberation. Likewise, um, over 40 years after the end of racially discriminatory statutes in the United States, The informal segregation of black and white communities is in some parts of the US as great today as it was in the 1950s. And those in the black underclass are just as locked out of economic success and opportunity as they were prior to the start of the civil rights era. Look at those inner-city wastelands in big American cities where black people, African Americans, are living in almost third-world standards of poverty. Quite clearly, racial equality was not sufficient. It wasn't the answer. So my point is that these are lessons we ignore at our peril. And for the LGBT plus community, the same fate may await us if we jump uncritically on the equality bandwagon we may end up with equal rights and to a large extent we have but within a fundamentally unjust society where the rules are skewed against still skewed against sexual choice and self-determination against personal empowerment and fulfilment. Put it this way, equality for LGBT plus people often seems to be a political deal uh, that leads to social assimilation, that LGBT plus people become facsimiles of traditional heterosexuality. Um, As a condition of equal treatment, we LGBTs are expected to conform to the quote straight system, adopting the dominant norms and aspirations. And we can see that very clearly in the dominant LGBT plus issues of the last two decades. Same sex marriage and same sex parenting. I support those causes. I fought for them with many others. But they are very much a heteronormative agenda. It's very much about us as LGBT plus people fitting in and conforming to the mainstream dominant heterosexual culture. And of course, the end result is LGBT plus corruption. And I suppose the beginning of invisibilization because we are beginning to merge, almost imperceptibly, into this dominant culture, losing our own identity, our own distinctive culture, and really becoming indistinguishable from our straight friends and families. I think that we have largely got equality. All the major laws have gone that have discriminated against LGBT plus people, and that's fantastic. But I think in the process, we have, perhaps inadvertently, surrendered some of our unique, distinctive, queer identity, lifestyle, and values. And by that, I mean the important insights and ethics that LGBT plus people forged in response to exclusion and discrimination by a hostile straight world. We developed our own subculture within the mainstream culture. We developed that culture in response to oppression, but also as an expression of our sexuality and gender identity. And I think we're beginning to lose it. I think we're beginning to lose it. So many LGBT plus people today, their aspirations, their values, their norms are pretty much indistinguishable from those of their straight friends and allies now that doesn't make it automatically wrong but i just wonder whether that is the right way to go Um, you know there seems to be a new mood not just among the heterosexual majority but even amongst lgbt plus people that for this gift of equality and law reform, for this greater public acceptance, we are expected to behave respectably, to comply with the dominant heterosexual moral agenda. So even within the LGBT plus community, you find there's quite a lot of, perhaps even increasing numbers, of, of voices against things like cruising, Orgies, sadomasochism, sex clubs. It's like, I sort of feel it's like the good gays, the respectable gays, are being rewarded with equal treatment or expected to behave good in order, as a thank you for the equal treatment they've been given. Meanwhile, all the sex repressive social structures, institutions, and moralities remain intact. And the bad gays, they remain sexual outlaws. The bad gays are embarrassment. We don't want to associate with them. They're not part of us. We're good. We've got, we've got we're kids. We've got a mortgage. We've got a nice little house in the suburbs. So this new, what I call, nouveau gay reformism involves the abandonment of any critical perspective on straight culture. In place of a healthy skepticism towards what I would call the heterosexual consensus, it substitutes a naive acquiescence. Discernment is jettisoned in favor of compliance and conformity. We trade our souls for the gift of equal rights. Now perhaps I exaggerate slightly, but I think the truth is that most contemporary advocates of LGBT plus equality do not question the status quo. They take it for granted. I say they are straight minds trapped in queer bodies. <laughs> Accepting society as it is, these, quote, heterohomos. <laughs> want nothing more than their little cozy place in the straight sun and i can understand that fair enough but where is the attempt to distinguish between those elements of straight culture that are worthy of our emulation and those that are not it's all about taking a reverse view of discrimination. I think we should discriminate against those aspects of straight culture that damage us and ultimately damage them. Because if we don't, we're just letting the system roll on. And there may be elements of the system, the status quo, which are fine. I may have no gripe with some things, but Certainly, there's going to be elements of society as it is that we all need to question, regardless of our sexual orientation or gender identity. And this gives us a common interest between LGBT plus and heterosexual to work together for our common liberation. (laughs) Now, there is, unfortunately, plenty of evidence of the desire of many LGBT plus people to mindlessly appropriate every legal right that heterosexuals have, no matter how crass and how morally dubious. I want to just give you a few examples. All over the world, the majority of LGBT plus pressure groups have demanded, in many cases, one, the right of LGBT plus people to serve in the armed forces. What they haven't done is questioned the armed forces as institutions its authoritarian nature, nor its bloody history of human rights abuses. Now, I was involved in the campaign to challenge the exclusion of LGBT plus people from the armed forces. And in my view, it was absolutely right to challenge the homophobic, biophobic, and transphobic discrimination that excluded us from the military. That was undoubtedly wrong. That was worthy of challenge. But I add this we should also be challenging militarism and imperialism. We should also be challenging the way in which armed forces have sometimes acted in ways that have not been conducive to our or other people's human rights. In the United States, the LGBT plus campaign group, the Campaign for Military Service, preached a gung-ho, God-fearing patriotism, which completely exonerated American excesses in Vietnam, Panama, Grenada, Iraq, and Afghanistan. They supported the U.S. military, right or wrong. They gave up all skepticism, all criticism, all discernment. And I've got to say that our own armed forces have a likewise-checkered history. And apart from the LGBT group outrage in the 1990s, nobody, no organization in the LGBT plus community challenged that. So I'm very, very proud and supportive of the role the British armed forces played during the Second World War to defeat fascism. But I'm not so proud of our military role after the Second World War, when the British Armed Forces suppressed national liberation struggles in Malaya, Kenya, Aden, Cyprus and Ireland. And the full story of what happened in Ireland has has never been publicly told. The secret undercover assassination squads of the British Army, who targeted merely suspicious, Republican or IRA people without any due process or trial. So I say, let's, of course, acknowledge that we were right to oppose anti LGBT plus discrimination in the armed forces. But let's acknowledge we failed big time in critiquing the armed forces. We fought a battle for LGBT plus rights in the armed forces. We didn't link up with the struggle against gender discrimination or race discrimination in the armed forces. We didn't stand in solidarity with the reform of the court-martial system, which is a, a suppression of civil liberties, which would be completely and totally unacceptable in civilian society. We never supported those brave military personnel who sought to challenge the undemocratic, authoritarian nature of the armed forces, the class basis of that system. I'll tell you, I was going to write a book about exposing you know an inside view of the the military in the 1970s after i left college Um, the idea was to enlist and then write a story about what it's really like so i um signed up to join the royal artillery and was sent off on a series of training exercises um a week at the then headquarters in woolwich and then another week down at the uh, artillery ranges on Salisbury Plain. I was flabbergasted. Everywhere you went, every building said, officers, ranks. So the officers had their grand entrance. The lower ranks had their entrance around the back. Um, I was not even an enlisted person. And I had, at taxpayer's expense, a serving military soldier come in the morning to run my bath and give me tea. The whole class, race, gender, sexuality issue was just, it was completely mind-blowing. I eventually wrote a book called Democratic Defense, which um, exposed some of these things. Um, But it's it's a really classic example of how the sceptical, critical view of the armed forces was lost in the debate about the right of LGBT people to serve and not suffer exclusion and discrimination. Another example, which I briefly mentioned previously, is, is the age of consent. Of course, we were right to oppose on an unequal age of consent. 21 then reduced to 18, and then we had to fight to get it equal at 16. But again, in the process of that change, We never questioned whether 16 was the right age. And we never defended the rights of LGBT plus or straight kids under 16 who were having consenting sexual relationships and who were criminalized by the law. I think that was a profound mistake. Under 16s in the LGBT plus community are some of the most vulnerable people in our community. And we didn't take a stand. Well, again, apart from outrage, the group that I was involved in, we didn't take, as a community, we didn't take a stand to defend those LGBT plus people or the straight kids who are victimized sometimes by these laws. When I did the research in 1989, um, I found that every year hundreds of young people under the age of 16 were either convicted or cautioned every year or in 1989, anyway, for uh, consent, apparently consenting relationships where there was not much difference in the partner's ages. Now, I don't advocate early sex. I think it's best if young people wait. I certainly don't agree with older people having sex with those much younger. But this is clearly a fairly narrow age difference where the person's concerned had not complained. Basically, what had happened was parents didn't like the boyfriend or girlfriend so they dumped them into the police. That's basically the way it happened. And these guys, or most, because they were mostly men, but not entirely, end up getting criminal convictions or a criminal record through a caution. We didn't talk about those issues when we were discussing the age of consent. Um, we now know, then and now, that the average age of first sexual experience today in Britain is about 13 or 14. Not necessarily full intercourse, but maybe oral sex, mutual masturbation, heavy petting, and so on. But all these kinds of sexual behaviour are serious criminal offences under the 2003 uh, Sexual Offences Act. That legislation in that year, which was the same legislation that equalised the age of consent, that legislation, for the first time, made consenting sex between two people under 16 an explicit criminal offense punishable by up to five years detention in the young offenders' institution. And that legislation covers not just sexual intercourse, but even mere sexual touching and kissing. Hardly anybody protested against that. Outrage did. But no one else in the LGBT community, and not even most mainstream organizations like child welfare and family organizations. Although they nearly all told me privately they were horrified by this law. To criminalize two consenting 15-year-olds who merely kissed and cuddled and perhaps touched each other's private parts, to threaten them with criminalization and a five-year detention, they thought that was totally wrong. But they said, we can't say so publicly in the current atmosphere. They'll brand us as paedophile apologists. How tragic is that? That a sincere concern about young people's welfare and opposition to criminalization should run the risk of being branded as some kind of paedophilia apology. So my point is that we do need to sometimes stick our necks out. This issue is probably the most toxic and difficult of all, but sometimes we do need to stick our necks out to stand up for what is right and think about those in our community who are most vulnerable. And that applies just as much to young straight kids as to LGBT plus ones. The final example I want to give you is the whole battle for same-sex marriage. Again, a battle that I was very much involved in. In fact, together with my colleagues in the LGBT plus direct action group outrage, we filed the first legal challenge to the ban on same-sex marriage way back in 1992, when we organized five same-sex couples to seek a marriage license at Westminster Register Office. Of course, they were refused, but that was the opening shot in 1992. And we did this even though we as a group and as individuals shared the feminist critique of marriage. We saw the patriarchal, sexist, misogynistic history. We saw the residues that still remain today. But we still felt that the equality issue was worth fighting for, although we also had an agenda beyond equality. So simultaneously, while arguing for an end to the ban on same-sex marriage, we argued for an alternative to marriage, for those who want it. We weren't saying abolish marriage. We were saying, we share the feminist critique. We think if we were starting from scratch, the marriage model would not be the one we choose. Here's an alternative. So our proposal was that anyone could nominate any significant other person in their life as their next of kin and beneficiary. That would end discrimination against single people and a person could nominate their partner or lover, they could nominate a favourite niece or nephew, they could nominate a lifelong best friend, a carer, a housemate. Give everyone the choice. And then when it comes to the agreement that both would have to sign, instead of marriage, which is one size fits all, you know, the document is there, you don't negotiate, you just sign. We said let partners pick and mix from a menu of rights and responsibilities to create a partnership agreement tailor-made to their particular circumstances. So we said this because we recognize that in today's society there are many different models of lifestyle and relationship. Some partners live together, others live apart. Some maintain their own finances, some share them. Some have separate financial arrangements. Some have kids, some have don't. We said, said, let's give everyone the option of creating their own tailor-made partnership agreement. Because among other things, if they have to negotiate and sign each point, it might actually lead also to wiser, more responsible decisions. But we felt that was a much more appropriate kind of legal framework for um, recognizing relationships. And some of you may have seen my my article in The Guardian on that issue uh, last week on on the 7th of February. So again, that's an example of how we can support equality, but we can also have an agenda beyond equality. We can simultaneously challenge discrimination, but also posit an alternative. And again, that kind of alternative transcends sexuality and gender identity. There's something in it for straight people not just LGBT plus people. I think that is the way we make progress, by building alliances (laughs) around agendas for change that can benefit all of us. Yes, we do have to challenge the specific discrimination that women, black people, and LGBT plus people face. But Let's also look beyond that. Let's also see a bigger, broader, longer agenda that can question society as it is. So my conclusion is, referencing LGBT plus people, equality within the status quo is a progress, but a flawed progress. It's short, it shortfalls what could be. I think it lets down both LGBT plus people and straight people. What has to change is society. We have to change society, not just us. And to me, social transformation is the key to meaningful queer liberation, meaningful women's liberation, meaningful black liberation. Equality, yes, but on the basis of a new and different kind of society where there are wider more expansive human rights for people of all sexualities, genders and races. Oscar Wilde once wrote, we are all in the gutter, but some of us are looking at the stars. We too need to rediscover the vision thing, and that means daring to imagine what society could be rather than accepting society as it is. Thank you.